Hey everyone, how's it going? Um, uh, Mandy Bernabe here. I am your host, and I have Dorian Smiley, who is a good friend here. And we're going to be talking about Palantir for Smart Manufacturing. Here's a little bit of the, of the background. Palantir just had an event uh, talking about their services for smart manufacturing. And that's my space, uh, a little bit of introduction. I am um, I, I run a consultancy that focuses on AI for Industry 4.0. Um, and I'll also uh, introduce Dorian, who is a CTO. He's a technology expert um, and... Uh, former C <laughs> CSO, now VP of Technology. Okay, excuse me. Um, but um, Dorian is one of the most knowledgeable persons that I know when it comes to cloud computing and Palantir's technology. And so really happy to have him on the channel to, to talk about it. Um, feel free to drop your comments in, in the sections. But with that, um, I'll just kick us off, Dorian. Um, uh, the event was a little bit shorter than I would have thought. Um, uh, it was hosted by a couple of folks, um, a, a deployment strategist, an architect, and a, and a product person. And I thought it was just sort of um, some general commentary on uh, some of the use cases that the team has been seeing. Um, I, I frankly would have wanted to see a little bit more technology, a little bit more demoing of the software. Um, I'm not sure who the intended audience was for that event, but it seemed to me like a little bit too watered down for a, a serious engineering customer. So if I'm, you know, I've talked to engineering managers that would be interested in Palantir for their operations. Like that's, you know, the commentary there is, uh, was, you know, that's kind of like the standard stuff for them. Um, if you're an IT person, then also kind of standard stuff. So from my vantage point, I would have I would have wanted to see a little bit more demonstration of the actual software. So they talked about uh, open by design. Okay, that's interesting to me. If I'm an an IT manager, I don't want to be locked into a vendor. How are you doing that? How is that? How how are you putting that into your technology? So those are some of the the quick thoughts that come to mind. And anything you want to comment on, Dorian? Yeah, I want to echo that. Uh, I really was like, who is this for? You know, because like we're we're so much like everyone kind of is a, a level deeper than that already. Who would show up to an event like that? In my opinion, you know, so like. If you're going to show up to that event, chances are you are you want a deep dive on what they're actually doing. The high level talk, I mean, it really is meaningless at this point. And so, like, I understand that they want to try and maybe frame the problem for for the industry and kind of like talk in generalities. But like, they need to start really digging into the technicals. And so, like, good example of that would be like when they're talking about avoiding vendor lock-in with lift and shift strategies and data silos, like, do you run Foundry in Azure, AWS and on-prem and can they all work together? Or are you like running Foundry on AWS, uh, on-prem Azure, and then you have one central install of Foundry that's kind of like the master Foundry and all the data goes in through there in the pipelines. Like those are questions that need to be answered, you know? Um, and because when I hear them say things like, oh, there's all these data silos at various cloud providers and then on-prem and all these places in most organizations, it's like, well, yeah, but how are you solving that problem with Foundry? Like, I can think of a million ways to solve it on my own, but we need to know, like, what is your approach to solving that? What advantages does Foundry give us when you're talking about these disaggregated data silos that are, like, running all over the place, you know? So Absolutely. And as someone that has deployed solutions to industry 
And, and yep. um, I can tell you that one of the biggest pain points is all the disparate data sources that yep. you need to tie together. So yep. I have ERP data. I need to know the history of an asset, when it was deployed, when it was launched, the version, yep. um, what's the most recent update to the software, who maintains it last, what did they do to it? Okay, now I have to pull that. I have to pull in telemetry data that's giving me real-time readings on the, on pressure, on electricity, and yep. what's going on with the machine. And I've got to tie all. And there's other four other data sources that I have to tie together to make decisions. And yep. so, I, you know, it. You know, my 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 sense is that Palantir has figured out a way to hack that better than most. I would like to see how 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 that's possible. How they're doing that yeah that's that's like that's like the critical thing i'm looking for because i think that is the zero to one move because because anyone can like bottleneck that into a silo it's hard but you can do it you know like take all that telemetry data take basically create a master account that everything is funneling into but that that has its own challenges like like the i think sam was her name uh the woman who was giving explanation on the palantir side about data streams and like yeah data streams get big real quick right it's like yeah. as their data spins up and you're operating you know you get and and so like having like a master account where you're funneling all that data into and it's sort of serving as the central bottleneck for everything. I mean, we can all do that, you know, like so. So I want to know, like, are you doing this in a decentralized way? Like, do you have a really cool architecture that solves this problem? Like, and how are you dealing with the data stream problem? You know, so like, is there on prem storage? Are you using, you know, federated learning with micro models on the sensors? Like what specifically are you doing that is different than how we've been approaching this problem in the past? Because restating the problems doesn't doesn't get me excited like just like okay yeah i don't i mean i i understand they're solving it somehow but it'd be cool if they would show us how you know right and and they have a, a number of good use cases on the website i mean just digging into any one of those like we, this yep. is how we solve predictive maintenance for yep. an airplane manufacturer okay just give us the details show us a little bit of the code how it's going i think that would that would help too um they, they mentioned a concept open by design and i would have wished they um, have spent a little bit more time on that, but I think this is getting to the one of the points that was ma made in the title of the presentation, which was avoiding vendor lock-in. I know that this is a pain point for a lot of IT managers, is they yeah. don't want to be stuck into one cloud provider or or one platform provider forever. Um, when they and they didn't really go into it, but when when they're talking about open by design, what were some of your impressions in terms of what they meant by that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, having used the platform, to me that just means it's it's all based on Kubernetes. So their whole deployment architecture is managed through Kubernetes, and then also um, microservices. So like Foundry is literally made up of hundreds of microservices. It looks like the AWS Death Star in terms of the number of orchestrated microservices in the platform. But those all have clear contracts and version, you know, they're versioned. And so you get the same benefits as um, AWS when you're building your architecture on top of microservices, right? So that's pretty much what they mean. And also that the platform itself is built on open source technology. So like Spark, for example, is heavily leveraged. Um, you know, the, the programming languages supported in the data pipelines layers like Java, Python, TypeScript. Um, so like it's in the sense that it's it's not taking like they're not building proprietary tech to solve um, problems that Spark solves for you. Right. And then all of that tech is also open source. So like all their Spark distribution, along with um, their React framework for their application layer, their TypeScript implementations, like all that is open source, too. So like, you know, they're they're open by design in that sense. I think I think they shouldn't have framed this this way, though, like because they're, they're framing the whole conversation around um, 
vendor lock-in. But like Foundry, yeah, it's an open platform and it uses um, open source technology. But at the same time, like once you're in it, like that, that you don't need another platform. Like you are basically locked into that platform. So like from your data pipelines and ingestation and data streams, like all the way down to your application layer out the other end. And the security model completely governs that whole thing end to end from like data ingest all the way down to the applications that the operator is using to make a go or no go decision based on a model inference. So I, I kind of wish they didn't uh, frame it that way. What's up, Chris? How's it going, man? Uh, but yeah, like I wish I wish they hadn't framed it that way. It just should have really been framed like, what is a clean architecture for building on top of legacy IT? Like that would have been a better way, in my opinion, of framing it. Because the problems they're talking about that they that they were explaining, trying to explain how they solve is really the result of a lot of legacy IT debt built into existing systems, in my opinion. Um, and they mentioned ERP. But I have a feeling there's some proprietary stuff they run into that manages a lot of the stuff as well. I have a feeling that comment the gentleman made about, uh, you know, why would you create your own container management system when you have Kubernetes? That's probably based on experience, you know, I'm guessing. Right. So he probably ran into a client that was doing that, you know, and like so. Um, but I think it's really like, what is clean architecture when you're building on top of legacy IT, especially a lot of on-prem legacy IT, and you got to get it into the cloud. And it's not just one cloud, it's multi-cloud. That's driven by the fact there's disaggregated data silos everywhere. So what is the architecture that solves this problem in a clean way, dealing with all the problems related to bottlenecks and security and all that? And, and that's really what I want to know. Like, what, how are they approaching that? You know? I think that's a good point. I almost, I'm, I think about Apple, like nobody's locked into the Apple ecosystem, but why right. would you leave? <laughs> right? Like all your apps are, are in that one place. They all work together. It's super yep. secure. It's like your happy place, right? Yep. Um, but the selling point there isn't that like you can't leave this. It's like we're going to optimize everything to work Value. so well together no. that you're not going to no. want to leave. Exactly. Exactly. They shouldn't frame it that way. So, and and uh, I, I think it's like vendor lock ins never been an issue for me. Like, I don't care about vendor lock in. I want the I want the best tool that solves the job. You know, so like if that happens to be BigQuery, then we're using BigQuery. You know, if that happens to be some other service on AWS, you know, whether it's EventBridge or SNS or SQS. Doesn't matter, but like I want the best service to solve the problem. I don't care who it's through, and I just have a plan for how I remove it later. You know, so like I if I have a plan in my architecture for how do I remove the service if it's problematic, great. But it can't be like driven by minor cost problems. Like I mean, like basically saying like oh, a marginal savings of plus or minus twenty percent would make me choose an inferior service. That's just idiotic. Like why would you do that? Especially when you consider that the cost of the cloud, like relative to the cost of operations is relatively small still, in my opinion, from what I've seen. Uh, and so we're talking like millions of dollars, like why are we even having the discussion? Because really what you're talking about is a marginal savings of a few thousand dollars a month or something. So like, who cares? Um, so the discussion shouldn't be like about vendor lock-in. It should be about like time to value and how do you do this right with clean architecture? How is it as low friction as possible? like all the benefits of why you want to be locked into the thing. <laughs> yeah, like, I right. want to be locked into a platform that does that. I don't want to be locked into this other, because you're going to be locked in no matter what, you know? So like, right. it doesn't matter what you buy. You're still going to be locked in. I, I just hate that whole framing of the problem. I wish they would just talk about it in terms of like the lowest friction, fastest time to value possible through their platform. You know, that would be a better way of approaching it. Right. And, and also maybe some of the downstream 
decision making capabilities that you get by having such a clean architecture. So um, you and I have talked about this, but one of the main hurdles to effective data science and decision making is all of this upstream data engineering and wrangling that has to go on, all this mapping. It's like a, a mess. And, you know, oftentimes you have a really good model that's going to allow you to predict something, but you don't have the necessary data to make that model work um, or you don't have the necessary infrastructure in place to productionize that model. And yep. so I think a better way to frame it, I think, and, and you kind of mentioned on this is like, hey, like this is how we're going to set your system up nice and super clean so that you can get to these data science insights and these other capabilities, other widgets, so you can turn these on really, really fast yep. and start driving the value from your investment. Yep. Yeah. I wish they would have talked a little bit about like um, how they get the data together because like Sankar talked a little bit about it yesterday, but they have this like intelligent data ingest kind of platform. Um, they've kind of hinted at it like in, in the ERP solutions where they're like, we can infer how the data relates from the metadata that's in the ERP system. But they talked a little bit about it yesterday. And that that to me is like one of the big things that is an advantage when you're looking at vendor lock-in is like, hey, wait, you can wrangle all these data silos I've been struggling with for three years. And every time I want a new piece of data, it takes me a month going through IT to like get that out of the system and like put into something where I can actually use it. You can do that in automatically. Like how the hell do you do that? You know, like that's one component of a smart factory. A lot of time is like, there's a lot of other data enrichment that takes place with all these various systems and and all this historical data. And how do you do that? And how do you do it effectively? You know, and and if they can do it in an intelligent way without you having to reinvent the wheel and you just plug it in and it works because they've solved this problem so many times, that would be something to like really talk about. And like the other thing that I again I wanted them to dive in is like, how are you solving the data stream problem? Like, what is the what is your approach? Is it because to me, like the ultimate way to do that is like every foundry instance can operate independent of the other and there's a service mesh in there somehow and they all talk to each other and they can share data or something rather than having like a master account which all the data has to funnel into through all these various foundry installs and all these various sensors so but if they would talk about that then that would also be cool because then you start to put the pieces together like oh you can intelligently analyze my data without me having to tell like stitch it all together manually which would be a huge zero to one move and then you can actually do this in a decentralized way with a mesh that lets this data be shared across all these various foundry installs without having a single point of failure in this like master account where everything's got to go to presenting all the problems with data streaming and all that kind of stuff. So I wish they would talk more about how they do that. Um, I totally follow with the um, the automated way of ingesting data. I think that's also when some people talk about digital twin and industry 4.0, they're really yep. talking about an ability to map disparate data sources to a couple of few common uh, types that make it easier for you to map new instances of that type to that to um, to that platform. So, for yeah. example, if you if you if you know what makes up a wind turbine, you know all the different readings that go into a wind turbine and all the different operations, all the different modes. You can have yep. an object of a wind turbine, and then you can just copy paste that and then redeploy that for the new instance of a wind turbine, and do that pretty fast. And that's a quick way to get all of your system, all, all of your all of your assets up and running on a platform. So I yep. think uh, I think that's what they're kind of getting at with the intelligent ingest platform of sorts. But again, would love to see a little bit more about that. Can you talk about this notion of a, of a decentralized approach? I think that's compelling. Yep. I, I, I have a little bit less understanding there. What's what's the value add there? Well, it's really solving the problem of A, like there's no single point of failure. So like 
when they gave the multi-cloud example, like, you know, they're basically saying the world today, I believe they stated like, it's really multiple clouds. Vendors are often on like GCP and, and AWS and then they have like local on-prem stuff, but it's more like a mix, mix, mix mash of various on-prem and cloud provider solutions that these companies are all touching. And that's part of the digital transformation journey these days. It's like, it's not just one cloud, it's all these clouds plus on-prem and, and, and on-prem also being the factories where the data is being generated, you know? So like that problem though, is often solved by saying, well, let's just spin up this master system in AWS. And then all of the data goes in there and then we analyze it all there. But but there's lots of problems with that. One, you're, you're locked into AWS. I mean, basically at that point, like why do you have these other cloud providers? You know, and like, if the argument is the service is that much better, great for a particular service, but if not, then there's this natural tendency to want to move towards consolidation, which is a distraction in a lot of cases and probably not worth doing. Um, but but it's also like a single point of failure, meaning if that like AWS region goes down where that thing is running, like you're screwed, you know, your whole operation's down. Um, so the problem becomes then, how do you get a decentralized version of that where you could run like multiple masters, whether it's all in different cloud providers, right? Or multi-region in AWS or on-prem, AWS multi-region, GCP multi-region. And then you start to approach something of a system that never goes down, right? So like you have ultimate redundancy in the system. It's an active, active multi-cloud architecture. No one, to my knowledge, has been able to make that work yet. Like active, active, multi-cloud, good fucking luck. Like active, active, multi-region, maybe, but that's hard. That's not easy. You know? So like even AWS will tell you, don't do it unless you absolutely have to do it, you know? And so like if they have a solution to that problem where you can have multi-cloud on-prem active, active, because Foundry has a networking mesh and basically you can pull data from where it's sort of owned and still use it, kind of like um, Snowflake's data sharing without replication feature. If they have a solution like that, that would be incredible because then it's completely resilient. You know, any Foundry instance could go offline pretty much. And if you can still get a copy of that data somewhere or get to the data, you're good, you know, but I don't know how you would do that. Like that's beyond my level of understanding. I haven't built a system that would be like multi-cloud, multi-region, or sorry, multi-cloud, multi-region within the cloud and also supporting on-prem all for a single system in which nothing is considered master really, you know, that would be challenging. Highly fragmented, but we have talked about yeah. Palantir being multi-cloud. You think that's a little bit more reasonable? They've stated, well, I mean, they've stated that they're multi-cloud and that Foundry works together. They just haven't elaborated on how, you know? So like in their in their demo day, uh, and I believe there was one other presentation they gave. So demo day last year, and then in another presentation they gave, they did state that Foundry isn't just a siloed application like that. It can actually work with multiple Foundry instances and interoperate in some way, but they haven't elaborated on that. But that does help solve this like single point of failure, you know, data stream bottleneck problem, like resiliency, redundancy, all these kind of things that we're looking for. That would be revolutionary, you know, because it basically means like every factory, you could run Foundry on-prem, right? And get a faster feedback loop and analysis with that factory, but you could link all those things together to get a better level of understanding globally. You know, and if you lose any one of those instances, the others are still operating effectively. Right. Um, so, is the in the pri the primary the primary reason to go multi cloud would be robustness, so that you're not losing um, anything when in regards to privacy, in regards to to um, maybe savings on on certain cloud functionalities. I'm I'm arguing that you want to have a homogeneous compute layer that doesn't care where you're deployed, right? So, like, and I'm actually saying like Foundry on prem in a factory would make a lot of sense, right? Like, you're right where the data is being generated right? You, you could have storage solutions on-prem that are way more durable than anything you would be dealing with that can go up to the cloud. 
it makes it easy to solve the streaming problem because like if you're storing the data streams directly on-prem and like Snowball or some other you know, appliance from a cloud provider, you're, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed never to lose that data and you don't have to worry about the pipeline out, you know? So it's literally sitting within a closed network on your, you know, in your existing prem. And then Foundry running on-prem, again, gives you the fastest feedback loop for the operator. So like, let's imagine you're pulling the models out to the sensors in your factory, right? And you're managing that through Foundry. The feedback loop on that is way faster if you're deploying internally, right? And then the, the operator is going to manage that system globally. They don't want to review every in inference made on every model on every sensor. They want to review the global state of the factory or maybe a group of sensors and kind of figure out like, is the model doing well or is it not doing well? Or should I make adjustments that the model isn't accounting for? But that feedback loop is only really possible in a lot of ways if you're doing on-prem because like, what if the internet goes out? You're saying your factory is not going to work anymore? Like, what are, what are we saying? You know, like, so I'm guessing that you, you pretty much, um, uh, need to be on-prem uh, for, for those installs. And there's got to be a way for these Foundry instances to be, and I know that they are agnostic over the compute layer. So like Foundry doesn't care if it's running in GCP, Azure, on-prem, or AWS. It's completely agnostic to that compute layer. And they've solved that problem with Apollo. So like Apollo deploys to all of those environments, including classified ones and other types of like installs that we don't know about. But, but so they can de definitely support that from the from their, their standpoint. And then you just operate on top of Foundry, right? You don't care if you're in the cloud. You don't care like whether you're on-prem. You're operating on this homogeneous compute layer that is Foundry. And again, Foundry is hundreds of microservices. So there's all these various modules and all these ways you interact with that system. But it's homogenous in the sense that there's no AWS control plane code. There's no single point of failure in that system. You're not like dedicated. You're not basically building your entire value chain up on top of this single cloud provider's control plane and managing all that infrastructure. Everything is provided on top of Foundry. You know. Um, but that's that, but that's why I get back to this mesh idea is like, well, how the hell do you make that work if you have a bunch of fragmented foundry installs, you know, like, and they, they've designed their system that way to support it, but like, how does it work together? You know, is there like some master instance out here that's like ultimate source of truth or like, what is, what is the way you solve that problem? Um, Doreen, can you talk a little bit more about the ingest problem? What's the, in your view, what's the best way to tackle that? I think, you know, we, we've said that you have a lot of disparate data sources. Maybe one way to do that is to have like a common ontology as to how you tackle each one of those different types. But there are downsides to that approach too. Any any thoughts there in terms of how do you optimize for that? I mean, in, in which context? Like in the context of I have a um, bunch of disaggregated data silos across like say a multi-account AWS setup. So I've got all these sub accounts and there's like various bits of first party data in there and I want to bring them all back together or like, or like give, a factory I'll, where like data is being generated at the edge. And yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I, I, I come on to a factory and they have a, a number of different lines. And then on those lines, they have a number of different machines and those, those machines have maybe three or four categories and they all kind of work together. Now, right now, the, the, the approach is to go into model for each one of those individual units. So I look at one machine and then I might model even one component on that machine, like yep. the like the engine for this machine. And then yep. I have to model out like how that machine works with the other machine because they're all connected in some way. And so I, I could do that you know, bit by bit, or I can have an automatic way of doing that um, as well to speed things up. That's kind of yep. the context that I, I would I, I would think about. 
don't know if there's an automated way to model it. I think there's an automated way to give it a semantic layer. So like uh, just bringing in the raw data by itself without like a semantic understanding is hard. And like if, I think they have like an ability to layer in those semantics, but it's, I don't think it's for anything imaginable. Like based on what they've said, basically there's this way in which they can interpret the data for known systems. So like if it's, an, if it's a sensor they've encountered before in a use case they know, they have a semantic representation of that. And so when you bring the data in, it's already modeled for you, you know? So you don't have to like understand it in the context of like, when I enrich it with this other stuff over here, what is it, what is it that I'm enriching? What are the relationships with this? They have like a semantic layer, a common kind of, you can almost think of it like a common ontology for that stuff to model it appropriately. And that's how they're able to do things like hyperauto, right? Is like they can infer what the semantics, the meaning from the semantics are for um, these ERP systems because they're stored, the data is stored in the same way in the same tables for the same use cases over and over and over again. So they just infer that. I think with the factories, they're probably doing something similar where if you have a particular sensor for a particular machine, right, that's doing a particular thing, whether that's the HVAC system or a boiler or whatever, they they have a, a, an understanding for that built in based on previous work they've done. And that, that seems to fit into their archetypes kind of feature. Like they've talked a little bit about foundry archetypes, Hyperauto being one of them. And that's how they're able to do that, in my opinion. Uh, but I don't think they have like AI that could arbitrary, just understand arbitrary data sets. You know, like there has to be some use case they've encountered and then they can automatically ingest that data without you having to stitch it into that, those, that semantic layer yourself to provide context around the data, you know? Gotcha. So they're, they're almost tapping into some sort of network effect within their, their, uh, client base of, of sorts well look at their sales strategy you know why do you think they do things like with hyundai heavy industries we're going to go out and resell the same solution over the entire industry because that's where you get that network effect that's where you get that like boost isn't oh well you guys are all operating like 90 percent the same way <laughs> yeah. like, once i understand this person's data i'm going to understand at least 90 percent of the other customers data with the same tooling you know so, yep spot on also seeing the yep. uh, same thing with airbus and skywise exactly yeah, so it's a great like, strategy. It's just like, uh, what's the ramp look like for us investors? We're <laughs> wondering, like, at what point do you get to a thousand of those, you know, or 10,000 of those? It's like, yeah, it's kind of frustrating. But yeah, I mean, it's a great strategy. It's, 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 it's definitely like a zero to one move for the customer. It's just how fast can you actually scale that up, you know? Right. Right. Uh, that makes, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, what would you like to see more of? So, um, as they start rolling out more of these presentations, what what would be your advice to the the folks that are rolling these out? I mean, for me, it's like you've got to provide some um, like the hyper auto demo is a great example of what to do, which is like show the technology. You don't have to dive into code if you don't want to, but show the tech the technology from the standpoint of the operator who will use it to solve a problem. So, like the great thing about the hyper auto demo is like. How do I find, how do I rebalance my supply chain, you know, and, and this is a real world use case, right, for their uh, spring locking pin, you know, and that's like something people are trying to do every day and they, they, it's really hard to do because they got to go through like 15 systems to like get the answer they want, stitch all that data together. So like walking through a use case of delivering business value out the other end is powerful. So like in the context of this factory scenario, like it would have been cool if we were starting from the standpoint of um, data ingest. So like let's just say all we had foundry installed on-prem and we had the sensor data coming in and then they could show like how they just like with hyper auto are providing that semantic representation of the data from a solution that was pre-built so they're not having to stitch it together themselves and then they could run what if scenarios like what if i turn you know what if i um 
turn my boiler down by, you know, five degrees at this time of day, what happens, you know? And they could like predict what's, what would actually happen to the factory production in real time doing those simulations and then pick the best one. You know, that would have been like a really powerful, I think, demo, because that's, I think, what people struggle to be able to do quickly is like make an actual decision based on um, some simulation or some model they construct and, and see how that can actually be done. Um, that would be compelling for me. I just, it has to be hands-on, in my opinion. It has to show like how you're getting value out of the system quickly, because otherwise all the generalities, like people in IT know how to solve those problems too, you know, so... Right. Spot yeah. spot on. I think that's a good format, like focus on the operator view on in terms of how they might be using the the end UI. So Sam yep. mentioned uh, with the PM on the call, she mentioned deploying a digital twin that was simple rules based. OK, I mean, yep. a lot of digital twins are rules based. That's totally fine. But <laughs> yep. show, but but show us how the operator is going to be using that to monitor the machine or to make simulations or what if analysis yep. and, th and then walk through the technology a little bit and then maybe give us a little bit of a sense of the architecture that went yep. into making that possible. Because for me, like as a, as a practitioner, like I, I want to see a little bit of the, the, um, the bottom of the iceberg, so to speak, you don't have to show <laughs> exactly. me the full guts, yeah, but yeah. show me how many different data sources you stitch together to make this yep. one little simple graphic, which to people to like, if you don't know any better, like a simple digital twin, oh, that's super easy to do, whatever. Like doing that in production is not easy, especially no, exactly. if you're, you're stitching a whole bunch of data sources together. Just yep. show me kind of a general diagram of how this happened, how it worked together. Um, I think that would be very compelling. Yeah, I, I think um, the hands-on usage is what's compelling for me. And it's like, because the who you want to get excited. Remember, I would show you that diagram of like right now we're in this point where it's like that sideways hourglass and like data is coming in this way and then a bottleneck in engineering and then like decisions come out the other end. But where we're trying to get to is where like the operator, meaning like the actual factory floor manager, you know, who's not technical, can make a decision based on what's happening in the data stream. That's where we want to get to. We want to move that bottleneck in engineering. No one wants that. It's not the nirvana state we want to be in. We want to be in the state where we go straight from data to decisions and. If they get that operator excited, so that person over there who's now waiting on engineering for three weeks to like answer a question, if they get them excited, then every sale they have won't be like this hard sell. You know, they'll actually have advocates who are like, "Dude, I saw a demo of this last week. It'll solve my waiting on this one person over here who's got me hung up for three weeks or a month for every question I ask." You know, I think that's that will flip the script to where like the actual people responsible for. Um, ownership over these initiatives, whether that's the CTO or the COO or the CEO, they'll start to be like, hey, if we can actually deliver the value faster because our factory floor managers and our people over here are saying they can, let's 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 invest more into this maybe and less into our own initiatives if they're bottlenecking our people, you know, if there's a faster way to get to the value. And that I think those discussions are going to become more relevant as like because right now there's all these additional pressures like hitting these people, right? So like supply chain disruptions, yay. And like you know, energy cost increases, woohoo, and like, you know, it's, it's inflation and war and all this other stuff. Like, like shit's not as easy to get by on a marginal factory anymore. Like if you're if you're like producing some marginal, you know, at a marginal rate and someone else can actually come in and be highly efficient, you're gonna lose and you're gonna lose fast because saving five cents, like Americans typically don't care, but they might start caring. <laughs> it's like it's you know, as as the world starts you know, counting its pennies as as it relates to like they're they're really having trouble affording to go to work 
like this this is going to make a big difference and i think they should like kind of lean into that as well like why does digital transformation matter you know well you want every factory you own every factory you have to not be a marginal factory you want it to be the most efficient one out there so you can compete in this ever-changing world in which people are actually worried about these things you know, so I think uh, spot on especially as we're looking to onshore production back to yep. the western hemisphere which yep. i think is going to be a trend i think you know since the supply chain uh shock started hitting there's been a lot more buzz about that like why are we waiting on other countries to ship us things that we need to get exactly. business going all right well what's the solution to that well you have to onshore that production okay but your labor costs are 10 times what they are in some other parts of the world. How are you going to adjust for that? We're going to use yeah. smart manufacturing technology to do that. Okay, Palantir is a good option for that. Here's some other options as well. Yep. I well, I mean, I don't want to make a huge leap there, but I think that there is, they, they have shown that there are gains. So they have case studies where they can show the measure, like quantifiable gain in terms of, you know, 20% savings or 30% savings or whatever it is. They, they can show that. I don't know. I haven't gone through all their use cases, but most of the impressive ones, I think, were in the energy industry, um, the auto industry. But they have, you know, they have hard data they can point to. I think, like, leaning into that hard data and being like, look, this is real money we can save you, you know. And, and we can't, we can do it in every plant. It's not just one plant. Like, every plant can be this efficient. I think that would be a really powerful um, selling point. But again, it's, there, there's just these questions I have about, like, again, what does the ramp look like? Like, is this, is this a, like, um, how long are you spending with each customer to get them to that point? You know, I'm like, what is the onboarding like? And how far along are you? Because Hyper Auto is super impressive, but like, how long did it take you to get to Hyper Auto? You know, like right. about a year's worth of work with other customers to get to that point, and now you're there. Um, so I just have questions about like, how baked is this thing? And like, how good is it in that context? And uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of questions. And that's more from an investment point of view. I guess if I was a customer, I wouldn't care as long as my time to value was quick you know and i could i i couldn't achieve a similar result with my own internal team if you're 10xing or giving me like literally a 10x better time to value then yeah let's sign on the dotted line i'm more as an investor looking at that going is it going to take you five years to roll this out on a you know sign up with your credit card scale or like where how do we get there you know um so yeah i i really like that i want to uh just comment on something that you mentioned earlier around going after the operator i think that that's right there, there are two ways that i've seen um smart solutions sold into industry one is from a top down where yep. you contact the ceo you get the chief digital officer in the room you put together a deal and then you go down to the factory floor look out for use cases the other way is is uh, bottom up, where you go to the engineering manager that's responsible at a particular plant for a particular line, and yep. you talk to them, and you put together your case for the technology, and then you sell it upwards to the to the higher ups. And yep. that I, I kind of like that model. It's a little bit harder to get to those folks, and they um and um they oftentimes want to see things uh, some of the things that we mentioned, the time, the value, the use cases. Um, but yep. I, 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 I think that's a much better approach. That's the, the Salesforce approach. I don't know if you know too much about how they scaled, but yep. they weren't going through the IT uh, side of the house. They're going directly to salespeople and saying, hey, we have a CRM that's specifically designed for your use case. Do you want to yep. try it? And then they start trying it. And the salespeople are like, oh, my!" the sales managers are like, oh, my gosh, I love this. I must have this. And I don't care, IT person, what you think. Like, turn this on for me. 
next week. I don't care. And so yeah, I, think- I mean, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and yeah, no, I'm super familiar. Um, there's a book I read. I think it was The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I can't remember. Or no, I think it was Play Bigger. Yeah, Play Bigger. They talk a lot about um, Salesforce's go-to-market strategy. It's legendary, actually, in the industry. Uh, and the, at the stunts they pulled, I think they, they called it the, the death of sales. They had a funeral for Salesforce, like a mock funeral. I don't know if you remember that. Like, <laughs> no. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, it has some legendary stuff, but um, no, like, but the problem with the approach, like, yes, that's the right approach in my opinion, but it's the right approach if you want to get to a hundred thousand customers, you know, it's not necessarily the right approach if you want to be in the global 2000 and that's it, you know, um, because of the global 2000, it's Alex Carp executive golf pro and go around and, and, and really like, you know, play around a golf with the CEOs and convince them that way. But I think that, that from what I'm hearing, they, they realize that to, to compete, like a lot of times, you know, like those companies that go after the global 2000, they get crushed in the down market from the very thing we're talking about, which is the people who reach the people on the factory floor and they have a low friction, low budget, like pay by the SIP model that falls in their budget and they just adopt that, you know? Right. And you're never going to get past the people that actually use this shit on a daily basis. Like, I don't care how much IT wants to build something. You're never going to get past the people that use a product that delivers value to them. That's just a oh. no go, you know, straight, straight. Spot on. And I, I can tell you that I've been on deals where we've got we've done it wrongly, where we yep. came in from the top down and it felt pushed on to those folks. And there's a little bit of sabotage that goes on. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, you know, corporate office wants us to use this. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> we're we're happy to help. Meanwhile, yeah. they're like like just like you know, waiting for you to fail. So yeah. um, you're right. No, like do not overlook how important those operators are. We yeah, um, Especially if there's a competitor entering down market who's got like a low friction, easy sign up process and it fits in their budget, even if they're going to spend 10 times the, the amount you might have spent with Foundry down the road, like as they onboard you to new services, it doesn't matter because that budget will just keep increasing. You know, so like I think they I think they I think they realize it. I, the part that scares me is just like um, like with this recent interview with um, Sankar was like they're not actually saying they're not letting us know exactly how they're going to solve that problem. You know, like, and it sounds like to me, like when I hear them describe it, they want to take and make foundry more modular. And, and so like, let me try and break this down, but like, we'll, we'll get back to why this is going to affect the operators and why they may not adopt that strategy, which is when, you, when they say we want to make it more modular, what I'm envisioning is like, you got this giant death star of microservices. Have you ever seen the AWS death star? Yes. A picture of it. Right. You know how you have that big ball of like little services that all interact, right? Right. And if you if you have to deploy one of those for each customer because you're using a silo model and you can't just disaggregate the relationships between those microservices and Foundry, that means you have a really high value like asset that has to has a high cost for you to deploy and manage. You know, like each one of those is hundreds of microservices. They're all orchestrated internally in this silo. They all have their own data sets that need to be isolated. And, and that's very much a silo model like a lot of companies use. I mean, like Tableau uses that model. A lot of other companies, Databricks has a similar model last time I checked it out. But like when you have hundreds of microservices, that's like a big problem. And they got to sell that thing at a high price to make sense of it or to make business sense of that. Now they're saying, well, let's make it more modular. They're basically saying, let's disaggregate the relationships between all those microservices so we can sell just the ones that need each other and, and can operate this these few slices, right? But the real solution to that problem isn't that, right? The real solution is, re-architect the whole damn thing from the ground up so it supports um, pool model where all isolation is done at the software level so you have one death star that runs basically everyone right except for your high value high, high you know customers who can afford to run it 
in a separate you know install and then the the tenant isolation is done within the software and you can just sign them up with a database entry essentially right so like that's the right solution but that would in my opinion require a complete re-architecture of foundry you know because you have to actually go in and do the the scoped isolation of each execution ensure the software is guaranteeing data isolation and security that that's pretty gnarly you know but so coming back to the operator level are they going to be able to produce a modular version of foundry that fits in that person's budget and is low friction and easy sign up with a credit card because that's what you're going to need that's what salesforce did you know so like you aren't going to convince those people unless they can sign up as easily as they can with snowflake until they get that through their fucking heads like and i i really mean this like i really don't think they understand that i think they have misunderstood the consumer space on a fundamental level because they've operated so long in the government space they've got to wake up to this and like Unless they're considering complete re-architecture and refactoring and that they're going to get to market with that, I don't think a smaller silo is going to get you to a price point like Snowflake or Salesforce, you know? That's my opinion. Like, like, average customer spend with those people is pretty low. Like, I think Snowflake's 162000 a year. I think uh, Salesforce is substantially less than that. So I think it's like 16000 a year. It's like Salesforce is really small average customer spend. So, yeah. And it's about, so I, th I like the contrast that you're making. It's, you know, are you going to go after the global 2000 or are you going to try to sell 100K of these different types of services? Um, well, can, can't you see that battle taking place inside Palantir right now? I, mean, right. I can't just, just by listening to what they're saying and what they're doing. Like I could picture the battles that they're having over this, you know? Spot on. And, you know, it, it, it may be like it's a matter of timing. Like, of course, yeah. we want to, to be able to get to 100K, but we need to sell at least X amount of the Global 2000 to fund it. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that would be the conversation I'd be having. It's like, who the fuck's going to pay for this? But at the same time, I mean, they are sitting on a lot of cash. I mean, they have like two over two billion in cash. So they could fund it. I think that's probably just like disruptive, you know, like um, how do you do that without derailing like a bunch of stuff that's already happening you know and like how do you make that all work together it would just be like there's probably a lot of strategic initiatives that have been in place for a while and it might seem as disrupt might be disruptive to that you know or might be perceived as disruptive or maybe they're doing it and it's just taking longer and they actually need to like get customers on boarded at the same time they're trying to rebuild this thing and get it into a place where you have that low friction onboarding you know it, it's probably an all or above scenario too, because in, at all these companies, there are hybrid models. You know, it's not just that you have the low friction experience, like Salesforce has its own consulting channel partners that build like custom solutions on top of Salesforce. There's enterprise installs of Salesforce that are in the multi, multiple millions of dollars, you know, for each install. Um, it's the same thing with like Snowflake, you know, so there, there are, there's tiers at every company. They, they definitely have that top tier experience wired and down. And I think they have even a mid tier kind of, business model down. I think where they're struggling is like the foundational layer, which is like the everyone else is like hundreds of thousands of customers who could propel this thing into trillions of dollars of value. Like we're missing the, that part, which is where most people start. You know, most people start on that low friction sign up, you know, 100,000 customer pool. And then they layer in the enterprise features down the road. You know, They're kind of going about it in the opposite way. We got a question here from Chris. Is Foundry yep. going to come out of the IT budget? <laughs> probably yeah i mean I, I think it has to right now uh, given the cost the, how much it costs like who else has a bigger budget I, i'm not sure i don't think marketing or sales would be able to afford it or uh you know if you have operations maybe so maybe operations could swing it but generally it has the biggest budget for that kind of stuff yeah chris also talks about how how um 
you know, stop treating IT as an adversary. Don't yeah. f, don't f with IT. And uh, we are professional monkey wrench tossers. Oh my god, like that that is spot on. You don't mess with IT because you know, like you can be six months into a POC and then like, oh, like you didn't make you didn't you didn't meet this qualification. Sorry, we yep. can't approve this POC. And like, boom, then the water. Six months done. I think, I mean, I think anytime you're coming in with a multi-million dollar spend, it's going to go through IT. I don't think it would go through another channel. Maybe, maybe it comes from the CEO to IT. Like the CEO says, hey, Mr. CTO, we're buying this platform, you know, um, make it happen. But like, I think in general, it's going to go through IT until they can get it down to a price point where someone with a $150,000 budget for IT in their, like, so like uh, your, your plant manager, you know, X over here has 150 grand to spend on um, software, you know, maybe 100,000 of that's going to go to um, Foundry instead of what, like 15 other platforms he was using or she was using to ma manage that plant, you know, that would be my guess. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what is the budget for software for those people versus IT? You know, to me, I, IT's got the massive seven, eight figure budgets, you know, like the right. other people don't have those kind of budgets. And and what's the pitch to an IT manager for for Foundry? Yeah, that's like. Let me take a sledgehammer to everything you built over the last ten years and make you look like a dumbass because my platform replaces it all. You know, like that's that's kind of how they're pitching. I mean, why do you think they're so adversarial with IT to begin with? You know, it's like I, I was I was going through the other night and I was counting all of the SaaS services I could eliminate with Foundry. You know. And I was starting with like business intelligence and then I was looking at um, security and logging, you know, and I was just like kind of going through and, and then there's the no code application layer. And then there's just even the react application layer of all these services like Next.js and stuff that we use. So I was like kind of going through and counting up all of the things they replace. And it's basically like a global solution for like, like that interview Sankar gave yesterday where he said that where the place, the ultimate place where they want to be is like an application platform, whether that's AWS or iOS or Android. Like that is the, you use their stuff to deliver applications in the future. You don't use AWS's, you know, which is a godsend because most of the services that AWS offers dog shit. Like it's just not even that good to begin with because they're run by teams of like five people of a relatively low understanding of all the nuance that, that you need in order to deliver value at the end of the end of that service without orchestrating it all yourself. So like, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, they like, how, how do you go into an IT department and tell them like all the stuff you built is now replaced by this, this other platform that is a sky compute layer and it's abstracted above the control plane of the cloud provider. And there's a lot of benefits to that. But, like you aren't going to convince those people of that. There's no way. It'd be like if Andy Jassy was going around, you know, 12, 13 years ago selling AWS instead of selling three services, you know, S3, IAM and EC2, he was selling the full Death Star today, like 200 plus microservices. People would be like, what the fuck are you talking about, buddy? Like this right. isn't happening. We're on J2E, man. Like you're talking about replacing my entire J2E stack with all these cloud native things. And that's still a fight they're having. <laughs> like, so I just, I don't see that as doable. Uh, Doran, you talked about ramping up and, you know, how companies like Salesforce have, have done that. And a big part yeah. of that playbook is around enabling outside developers and, and systems and integrators. Where is, where is Palantir on that front? They're getting better. Um, you know, their developer channel is actually pretty cool. If you take the time to, I mean, obviously it's not what we need, but like it's a good insight into all the pieces. And if you watch my videos, you can kind of see how they all play together and form like 
the basis of this engineering ops layer, which is, you know, everything from the IDE out the other end to the CICD build system, all the way into the pipelines and then ontology layer, the no-code application layer, low-code application layer. Like they've done a good job of kind of laying that out at a developer level so you could wrap your brain around it. That's not nowhere near where we need to be. I mean, like, dude, we every other company provides online documentation for the whole platform. I can see it all, right? Down to the micro each microservice level. Uh, they provide, you know, quick start guides and um, sample code on GitHub. They provide a certification track that's open to everyone. You don't need to be a customer. You know, they go around city to city holding, you know, conferences where you can get certified at the conference. You know, like that, that's the level of investment they're going to need for sure. Um, the good news is, they, like I said, they got a lot of money to make these investments. There's no shortage of capital, you know, and they're generating more and more of it every day. People are criticizing, like, you know, you're going to have too much cash. <laughs> so like, better do something with that cash. Well, all you can figure out to do with that cash is buy gold and buy SPACs. You're fucked. So like <laughs> investments in uh, in the developer community, you know, I think that would be a really good investment for them, but they're nowhere near where we need to be, you know, and, and again, just model it after any other company. Go to, go to Databricks right now, databricks.com. Go to the developer tab, you know, like look at all the resources they have for you. It's not a closed platform. It's totally open. And it's based on open source that they created, you know, like Spark, MLflow, Delta, those are all created by the people at Databricks and it's open source. You know, so like I think for Palantir to kind of reach that level of standing, they got a lot of investments they need to make and they need to make them quick. Like I don't I, I definitely like get I have a love-hate relationship with them because I'm like, why are you being so secretive? There's really no no reason for you to be this secretive. And um so yeah, I think they need to to get with it right quick and start making those investments. And they should start, you know, if they have open source technology or like technology that's proprietary, they should think about open sourcing it and contributing to the open source community. So, spot on, spot on. Yep. Let's let's see what uh, what else. And I'll mention, hey folks, if you've got a question or a comment, drop it in the chat. Uh, Chris here is saying everyone is getting tired of dashboards. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, well, so this is cool. Cause like, let's, let's kind of look at like, what is not like, okay. A dashboard is a bunch of global features, right? And it's really hard to tease out like the magnitude versus the effect of a global feature. So you got this one global feature, it's this big, right? And like, it's easy to see the magnitude of a global feature. It's really hard to tell what the effect of a global feature is, right? And so like, that's where we get into machine learning and data science. That's the whole, kind of the whole purpose in my opinion is like, um, Let's let's go beyond global features and let's tease out magnitude from effect and let's actually understand these systems at a, a much better level. And and like so they touched a little bit on um, the challenges we face there because truly what we want to model isn't one thing. Like it's not one piece of data that we tease out through this one algorithm. It's like we want to know the behavior of the system. Like it's a complex system, right? So like a factory is like a complex system. We want to predict what will happen if we give it different inputs. Right. But that's not like a solution for a single model. It's not even a solution for like artificial intelligence generally. Like this is a large scale computing problem, kind of like how we model uh, the early universe, right? So like when physicists are making models of the early universe, they kind of create a simplified version of that. Can't model every particle, but we can model enough of them um, and model the fields, but not to the, a complete, you know, infinite, this sort of infinite degree of granularity to a degree of granularity. I think that's like when they're talking about like how do you combine models into ensembles and then use those ensembles to model a system. I think that's really interesting where we want to get to to replace the dashboard is like get me to a point where I have a you know sort of decent representation of this system good enough and now let me give it inputs and see what it does. I think that's like 
the ultimate replacement for a dashboard because then you don't have to have the human in the loop looking at a global feature and making the mistake of you know misinterpreting its its mag its its magnitude from its effect and especially in a complex system which you can't reason about anyway like complex system you can't reason about you might as well flip a fucking coin you know like at the end of the day so you, know, you need a model of that system and if, i think that's what ultimately we get to as we combine these into these models into ensembles and we have operationalized all the data not just part of the data and you operate operationalize all the data and then you can make adjustments to certain variables and see what happens in simulation that's predictive you know and i think they can do it because like if you've heard carp talk about how um the predictive analytics that like go out and allow you to put people in jail before they commit a crime. Um, he said he wants to keep that in the counterterrorism space, but that, he's admitting that that's there, right? So like that is a thing, right? So like Palantir actually has software that makes predictions about systems in which they can run these kind of simulations. At least they've done it in the past, maybe in the intelligence space. But that would be really cool at the factory level or at the business level, you know, It'd be really cool. Totally. Um, I like. I think the holy grail is to be able to stitch together a whole bunch of different units, each of which have a vector of states. So where you yep. know where how it's performing, it has time associated with it. Yep. It has a vector of controls like on off, and then it has a vector of observations. Like here's the yep. ambient temperature. Here's what's happening upstream, downstream. And yep. each unit has that. And then it's all interlinked between unit to unit. And so yep. you have a combination of all of these and you have a, a digital factory of source. But because they're all connected and because they all have their own attributes, you can push on one of them and say, what happens when the state in this unit in the factory goes down for 30 seconds? What is that going to do to the ultimate output of my factory? And what is that yep. going to do for my all, all my production for a quarter? And you can predict that ahead of time. Um, yep. I think that's still very hard for, I mean, no, I don't think anybody's doing that right now well, but that's ultimately where we want to get to with, with smart manufacturing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever get out to months. Like, let, let's take an, a, a good analogy. Um, it's probably, it's more data than you would probably model, but we have easier ways to model it, which is like weather, right? So like, we can model a weather system about 10 days out, but it's not as good. The further out you go, the more degradation you get, you know? Right. I kind of have a feeling we'll get to the same kind of level with manufacturing, which is like, you could probably make pretty decent predictions out to 10 days. And after that, you'll have a lot of degradation. And it's mainly because of um, chaos, you know, like in a complex system, it's chaotic by nature, meaning like things are going to diverge from the attractors, you know? And so like, you'll get these random attractors that get injected just as a result of complexity, you know? So it's like, we, we can't necessarily, um, I think there will always be this element of chaos that that makes those predictions degrade over time, which we see anyway. I mean, you can just take a single model degrades relatively quickly, you know, on average, it's probably about six weeks or, you know, before it's useless. So like models degrade fast, which means they need continual retraining. And it's particularly because the inputs change, you know, so like right. the meaning and the values of the inputs are changing because this, dynamic system it's interacting with meaning the real world is changing you know so like that i think at a certain we'll get to the point where it's kind of like a weather pattern where you can like predict things at a certain degree of accuracy and then because of chaos and chaos theory you're going to find that complex systems all of them your ability to reason about the past and future degrade over a certain time frame you know but the resolution i don't know i mean maybe they could get out to months it, i guess it would just depend on 
um, how many variables are in that system and how closed it is, you know? So a more so, closed system with less variables could probably go out longer. Yeah, spot on. Uh, back when I was uh, doing weather forecasting model, we would there would be some element of, um, of trying to predict based on current variables, but then you yep. would blend into a, a seasonal historical model. Yeah. So like, like, yeah, my, my like model can predict what the weather is going to be like tomorrow, but probably not in 10 days. Well, yep. then let's just take the average weather for that same day for the past like 10 years. And that's your yep. best guess of what that should be or how we should be thinking about that, that data point. Yep. yep exactly. Um, and as we, you know, operationalize more and more data, the historical analysis component can come in, you know, as a secondary, but we just don't have enough of it yet. You know, like we're getting there, but well, yeah. well I think the, the challenge to the challenge is that a lot of these uh, factories are letting that data fall by the wayside every day because oh, yeah. they don't have the proper uh, infrastructure in place. So all this data that is potentially going to be super valuable for them in five years that should be captured today is just, it's just going down the drain because they, they don't have a good way of capturing it and parking it somewhere. Wouldn't this been a good topic for them to cover on this call today? Like, <laughs> how are you addressing that? Like, do you, like when I was bringing up earlier, like what is the blend of on-prem storage and cloud storage you're using, you know, because like you obviously don't want to lose data. So the internet's not an option. You know, you got to have some on-prem storage that is eventually making its way to the cloud. And like, you know, what do those data streams look like? And are you capturing them in real time? Or what's the delay in processing? Or is there even a processing stream out the other end? Like, do you just store the the, the, the the raw data and send that up to the cloud and all the inferences are made on device and you're not worried about batch processing? You don't care. You lose some of those inferences. Maybe you're maybe you're tracking one every thousand, you know, or right. something. But like, what is that solution? That's what I wanted to hear from them. They're like, show me an architecture of what that is. Because like, because we can't even get to like square one if that's not figured out, which it is. I know that a lot of people have figured that problem out. It's like, I was working at a company about seven or eight years ago where we had solutions for that. But like, um, it was in no way standardized. Like everyone would kind of approach that problem differently depending on who, who your vendor was or if you were even worried about it. But I think having that historical data is really valuable, you know? So even if you're just gonna back test stuff and, and incorporate things like enrich it with seasonality and weather, you know, like shit, we've even incorporated weather patterns into in user engagement and signup models. <laughs> so like to understand in different regions, like how weather is affecting that, you know? So like, you would think that these factories would be concerned about this kind of stuff. You know, having that that back testing pool along enriched with all these other data points that give you context around what's actually happening, like that sort of thing. It's it seems like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the manufacturing industry that well, but I don't know if they're pursuing that on at least maybe at the higher end. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Um, I think it's of course you want that information but the challenge is always uh they're the stitching it together and then sure. also um the fact that a lot of key information hasn't been historically archived yep. so i would love to see uh, that happens in so, uh, so for example i would like to see like the history of this particular machine oh we didn't keep that or yep. it's in like this crazy format that we can't access oftentimes too um the machine manufacturers won't give you access to the data on from the machine itself. Oh, like you geez. bought you bought the machine. Yeah, get this. Yeah, yeah. You bought the machine, but yep. access to its data is not part of the deal. Like you either like the Monsanto you have to, model where like the farmers can't keep the seeds. <laughs> they can't plant the seeds. You heard right. that like Monsanto yeah. they sell the seeds, but like you can't use the seeds from the 
plants that you grew because that would be a violation of the agreement. You know? like right. Thing. Yes. There's yeah. actually, yeah, there's a lot of that in manufacturing that's still getting right. kind of worked out. Um, and so there, so there's just those kind of challenges that, that, that exist. That's funny. I didn't know that that, that actually took place. That's pretty classic. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, we need that if we want to get to the point where like weather predictions, yeah, we need that. We need that historical data and it will help give us context over what's actually happening. So uh, the the other issue is, is that um the you know the the nature of the machine also changes quite a bit so yep. if you upgrade the firmware it's not the same machine that it was 5 years ago so even if you have yep. the same historical data it's not always applicable and i got to say like i went i i started my career in finance and then yep. i went into industry and that was one of the biggest pain points of going uh, from data science and finance to data science and industry. In finance, yep. I could sit down, I sat on my Bloomberg terminal, and I could download 20 years of historical data on you know the entire S&P 500, and I can grab 100 factors from price to earnings, cash flow, yep. everything, and one little command is great. But then you get into industry and like you don't have any of that. Like every time you, I want to start to write a new model, I have to like go out and get the data myself and clean it. It's always like sparsely populated. It's a big mess. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's, I mean, that that's some of the challenges in there are never going to go away. Uh, you, there's technical solutions to some of them as far as like uh, firmware updates and whatnot. Like if if you can if you can write adapters to just transform the data, like normalize it into something that's consistent, but then you have a loss function, you know, like there'll be a certain amount of loss in that transformation most of the time. And then there's a problem of processing it. So like, if you're not actually doing that in real time, like processing the historical data sucks, you know, cause then you've got like this big problem of like, well, how do you transform it all um, across all your factories? And that just becomes problematic. But I mean, I think that we could get to a better place if, if companies are like, adopting standards to do these kind of things you know so like like what is the holistic approach we want right well it's, i want to model this thing the same way i model a weather, weather system i think that's something that everyone can wrap their brain around how do we get there right like well we need to operationalize the data streams we need historical data to back test and give context and like we want to join it up with all these other things you know right whether that's actual weather system data because it affects the plant production or like you know other kinds of information about supply chains or energy cost or whatever else it is the, the grid provider and their service record, like whatever it is, you know, that you want to enrich all that data with. But there should be like a template kind of to follow. And I think that's where Palantir could, is probably going to lead the way, like in terms of we know how to solve this problem for real, you know. Um, and they've shown that. I mean, I think their track record record's really good in, in the energy industry, you know, and especially like with energy production and oil rigs and, you know, wind farms and a bunch of other stuff. So I, I think they could get there. It'd be cool to see like them advertise that though and show like, hey, we know how to solve this problem for real. We can take into account all these things so that you can get to the place where it's like a weather system. Because that would be like the ultimate, I mean, you know, carrot for the CEO out there or whatever is like, you could model it like a weather system. What? Like, tell me how I do that, you know, because that would be pretty cool. Spot on. Like, imagine yeah. getting like a daily forecast. 10 days out. 10 Here's days out. Yeah, yeah. And it's accurate, you know, fairly accurate. That would be pretty cool. And then you could do things like, what happens if this supplier shuts down, you know? And then you can model and have that as a part of your forecast. So like you could do go through the scenarios of like what actually, ha what this could look like should these events occur. 
and right. have it be way more accurate than looking at global feature analysis. Because like, again, the global feature analysis, it, it you're, you don't know, you can't, it's really hard to tease, tease out the magnitude from the effect of those things. And that's why you get like a poor resolution decision when you operate on those. But yeah, I mean, why don't they sell that? <laughs> cool. Well, well, I think you know. Some sometimes it's it's hard. Like having like I spent some time at an at an AI IoT startup, and I got to tell you, like getting the marketing right and how to sell it, how to pitch it, like yep. that's super. That's actually super hard. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I empathize with some of the folks at Palantir yep. and other other companies that are trying to get the message out as well. There's like a lot of voices internally, and there's things like there's a lot of like back and forth but that said i got a comment here from linkedin great talk both of you i've onboarded your suggestions for my next session so i'm <laughs> guessing this is someone from palantir that's listening <laughs> in on and, and getting like this feedback but um nice. i think you know hey this is how you get better right this is why i like the fact that they're being open and and, and honest yep. with this stuff and here's what we have like give us some feedback guys like we're gonna go back and we're gonna you know do a better session next time and I feel like, you know, if, if any company can take this type of criticism, it's the yep. folks over at Palantir. <laughs> well, they get praised too. You should have seen the comments from the Hyper Auto demo. It was amazing. It was like, I, I had so many people reaching out in the channel, like leaving comments in my breakdown of the video where they were like, dude, I work in a Navy shipyard. We need this. Or like, you know, my wife works on this system for ERP and she hates it. And like, this thing would make her job so much easier. Like the the minds were blown on that hyper hyper auto demo and like it was the operators who use those who are trying to interact with ERP systems in that manufacturing or in that you know space where they were just like oh my god this is beyond anything that we've seen you know so it's like they 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 definitely when they hit home runs like people are freaking out and that's how I know when they hit a home run is like the reaction from the audience is just like oh my god you know like this yeah. is amazing and they're capable of delivering that you know like their software is that good. Um, I give them a hard time because I want I want my 10x return. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it is a true zero to one move. Like it's it's super impressive stuff. Um, hopefully, we'll get to show more of it on the channel soon. I have some stuff that I'm working on with them so we can demo uh, use cases. I can just go through like like one of the ones that I want is a generalized application platform for Foundry, where like a lot of the tools we use, like um, Versal is a good example in the in like the modern web application world where they run your your react app or your angular app which is just like a web application or a mobile web application but they let you plug into all these services right but the problem with that is all these services represent like all these weird data silos and you got to get that first party data back into like a central system and foundry could actually be like the ultimate um, nirvana platform for building every kind of application possible because you get this like ability to stitch the data back together through a federated model back into the ontology system in Foundry. But what's cool is that can actually power application layers. So like I can export hot partitions of that data out to really fast read sources like Redis, and I can launch full React applications on top of Foundry that are governed by the same security model. So now I get an end-to-end -end integrated security model with data governance, which is like most of the problems we have in building like a lot of these applications is governing the data usage and data consumption. And get that out of box with Foundry, and if we do it right, you can actually write back to Foundry through these apps, make a change through this model called an optimistic update, where the update goes into a data stream. Foundry will eventually process it and then notify your application that it took place. If you can do that, you will have like solved the biggest problem for teams that I manage, which are our iOS teams, our Android teams, our React teams. And like, how do we build an ecosystem on top of our operationalized data? Foundry has figured out a way for you to do that. And 
really excited with this like federated data concept because what it'll do too is it'll eliminate the need for tools like GraphQL. We don't need GraphQL. I always hated GraphQL because it was like they're doing the same kind of federated data concept. They're doing it really poorly with really high latency. And the way Foundry could do it is like extremely high latency. Like I can go from something that takes three, 400 milliseconds to like five milliseconds, right? So like that's a huge, huge move. Um, and also the ability to govern it end to end. So I get the same data security basically end to end. So there's some things, so we're experimenting with that with Foundry, but I, I think Sankar is right when he's saying things like, this will be the next AWS. Because if I can do this proof of concept, I can show how we would never want to use AWS ever again for anything. <laughs> so I just want to build everything on Foundry from the, from the get-go, except for maybe like I need some Redis clusters or I need some RDS cluster or something like that. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about this concept of federated data model? Yeah. Yeah. So like there's two really big problems we face today. One is that we generate a lot of first party data across multiple sub accounts in AWS. So like every time a new app spins up with a new team, a lot of them get separate sub accounts. They may share a common VPC architecture through um, transit gateway in AWS where you have like certain CIDR block ranges that can be shared, but typically there's a sub account. And what happens is that, app will now generate first party data in that sub account. So like maybe there's an RDS instance or a document DB, or maybe they're using um, Dynamo DB, which doesn't sort of doesn't apply, but it kind of does. Uh, but but they're generating all this first party data, but we want to model like, let's just take a user, right? Between our iOS, Android and mobile web applications, along with line of business applications, what defines a user is now fragmented into all these data silos. There's all these various attributes that are common, but then there's ones they're generating specifically for that application. But we want to know, like, what does a user look like totally with all that data? You know, like, let's pull it all back together. But like going out and reaching into all those sub accounts to get a common domain model of all that data put together and have it cleaned and maybe have it enriched. Right. That's a hard problem. And I mean, there are multiple ways to do it. You can build your own data pipelines and like, you know, Spark and write that code yourself. Uh, you can use GraphQL and do federated GraphQL endpoints and pull it all up through there through like that REST API. But to me, like that's all time consuming and painful and, and usually really low, like really slow. Okay. So like managing it that way is really, really slow and it's really, really brittle, you know, and there's different security problems baked into each of those sub accounts. You can't have, it's really hard to have a unified security model where people are accessing that data. So what Foundry allows you to do is kind of a pre-built way in which it can automatically ingest all of the data sources that are out there and let you operationalize that really fast because they have this web-based IDE that includes um, quality checks and unit testing and auto, you know, like linting. It's like a full integrated development environment to operationalize that from day one. And you don't have to spend like a year making sure that your pipelines are you know deterministic and repeatable with good engineering on top of them it, they give it to you in day one plus they can understand the data sources relatively easily so that smart intelligent sort of understanding of the data is really important when you're talking about stitching it back together into a common ontology or domain model so like foundry accelerates that a lot and what's cool about foundry and people don't realize is there's an entire application layer on sitting on top of this thing that is based in react react is the most popular like web application framework it's like 80 percent of the web apps you use is built in react it's a framework created by facebook but this is all integrated natively in foundry and they have typescript ide support built in so you can like build your own applications directly in foundry and it's governed by the same security model so like whenever you make an app in foundry it automatically inherits all of the security models that are built into it right so like 
that's advantageous. And it's built on microservices, meaning if I want to access my domain model in Foundry, it's going through a microservice to do it. And I can independently scale that microservice out in Kubernetes. So like if I have a really large concurrency app, like maybe there's 100 million users that use it, maybe a million of those or 100,000 of those are concurrent. I can auto scale the APIs that come with Foundry to access that ontology layer automatically, right? So that's really powerful. But there's other things we can do for read-only data sources, um, like Redis, where we can export out of the ontology layer in Foundry to power our apps. So it's it, it's really a zero to one move in like how you build an application on top of this federated data store, so that all your apps talk about data in the same way, even if they're generating first-party data that finds its way back into the ontology. And it's we're doing the proof of concept around that, along with some other ML ops scenarios. But if we can if we solve this problem we have leapfrogged the industry. You know, like we will have the most advanced architecture, in my opinion, of anybody out there, like bar none. We're solving huge problems that other people are like spending vast amounts of time and money trying to trying to do. Netflix is a good example. Distributed search indexing in Netflix and like pulling together all the fragmented eggshells so they can search across all of their data stores. That's a hard problem. You go read their blog about how they solve that, right? Deployment to smart TVs. Go read their blog about how they did that. Well, Apollo does that. <laughs> so like, like the fact that we could take this platform and leapfrog people like Netflix or at least attain a level similar to them would be like incredible for a company our size. It would just be like, and, you, just can't, you can't describe it. You know? and, 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 and Dorian, for some of these uh, industrial players, one of the big challenges that they have is attracting... Um, um, IT and and um, uh, professionals, uh, people that are, are like developers, data scientists, data engineers. I would imagine yeah. that 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 it would help them as well from that perspective. So like, hey, we're gonna give you like one tool to use. So just find somebody that is capable within the Palantir ecosystem, and then they're and then you're gonna be able to use that one person across different types of domains and applications. So like now we have yeah. to spin up a new predictive maintenance machine for this machine and we already did it for this machine okay you can use the same person and they're going to come in and 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 because they have all these tools available they have the the ide already set up they have access yep. to the same data it's going to make it super easy for them to do so you're going to have you're going to have less of a pain point in trying to go out and find these folks i think it will definitely like as there, there'll be multiple certifications in foundry so like there are different actors at different levels within that system i'm describing um but I think what's cool about it is like, yeah, you'll, it's homogenous. So like if you if you go between foundries, you'll have this like kind of like homogenous layer you're used to using. Compare that to going between cloud providers, you know, like how GCP Ooh. talks about a serverless function versus AWS versus the totally. security. Model. It's like you, you just, right. there's no overlap, dude. <laughs> right. You know? and what do you do? You have one person that's an expert in all three platforms. Good luck with that. You know, like right. these are deep platforms, man. So you, you basically right now the way, where we're at with all these tools is you need SMEs in particular parts of the stack, you know, so like I need an SME who's, you know, a serverless expert at AWS, or I might need an SME in um, container orchestration and container services and RDS and, you know, like another one who's an expert in security, you know, and that's just AWS. So I have all these roles just for AWS. In Foundry, there'll be similar roles. I'm not saying that the roles will be different, the actors are going to be different, but there's just one set of them, you know. Because they've abstracted away the entire compute layer, you know, you only need to know Foundry. And I suspect more and more companies are going this way when they're creating um, holistic platforms to operationalize data. Because at the end of the day, when we're talking about operationalizing data, that is your fucking business. I mean, you're not in another business. 
anymore. Like that, that is the business you're in. And so it's kind of like the foundational layer of IT. And that's why they call themselves the big data OS, you know, and that's really what they are. But I suspect there'll be competitors that come out with different flavors of this, you know, like, but it, it is an operating system level kind of thing, you know? So, so yeah, you, you'll have the same kind of actors, but they're all within the same kind of platform and it's much easier to train them and it's much easier to move them around. And, and to me, that's like, if Foundry is as good as they say it is, and it appears to be to me with my limited experience with the platform, um, it's the most important certification you can get. You know, like <laughs> if you want to future proof your career right now, future proof it that way. Um, however, you can get your hands on. Hopefully, I'll I'll get some opportunities for people to um, get a hold of Foundry certifications through the channel. Still working with Palantir to see if that's a viable option, and then I'm also working to provide um, a certified prerequisite training program for like different layers. But right now, the the data engineering layer. But I do think it's probably going to be the most important certification to have if it's as good as they say it is. You know. Yeah, spot on. Um, Dorian, I'd love to plug. Um, do you have like a waiting list or something? How do people, uh, I guess, get on your radar? And, you know, like if they're interested in getting that type of certification and you, you do roll out with it, what's the best way for folks to kind of uh, track that? You don't have to answer me now. I can include it in the show notes, actually. Maybe that's a better way to do it. Like I can create a link uh, for people to go and, log and sign up for a certification program that you might have coming out for Palantir. Um, I don't have anything right now. It's still in the works. I'm working with them to kind of see what they can officially approve and be like, can you officially approve these courses, you know, and these, these trainings for the data engineering layer, which is the data pipelines. So like, if you go to their developer channel, you can see like when they're talking about data pipelines and um, building projects, like you'll see this, this all starts with like Spark basically. So like you're building Spark data pipelines to ingest the data and then clean the data. And so I'm working on certifications for like Python and Spark and SQL that will be the prerequisites to certify, take the certification in those layers, you know? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But those, and, but the certification itself is still closed, right? So like right. you have to be a Palantir customer or work for a company that ha is a customer of theirs in order to get access to the certification. And I'm trying to see like, if I can give away some certifications on the channel, uh, that's still up. We're, I'm still talking to them about that, but it would still be like you would have to work for a company that is working with Palantir, which is a total bummer. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. One last comment here. If Foundry saves so much time and gives profitable efficiencies, why can't it be sold dirt cheap with the buyer paying huge when the results show benefits and the client is hooked? Seems like the confidence is there. That's not a, that's not a bad idea either. So sell yeah. it, sell it cheap. Like, Hey, you know, we're going to give it to you at cost. But when you see how much this saves you, then that's when you pay. Or it's a value, uh, a value share kind of model. I think I think I answered that earlier, though, which is that um, when you have a Death Star of hundreds of microservices and they all have to be managed, it's so like you do get deployed into a SaaS environment. So you're getting kind of your own environment. It's a silo model, right? So like you have a silo for each customer. But if you have to be responsible for managing that, there's a certain dollar amount that Palantir is going to put on that for customer support and uh, maintenance, right? Right. And that's a small amount. I mean, it's definitely cheaper. You're, you're going to spend the same amount to get those same set of microservices on AWS for sure, like easily. Um, you'll probably spend more than that, maybe three times that for those same set of services. But if you're only using like three or four of them, like it would seem like you're not really getting a good deal, you know? And I think that's where, when you hear Sankar, like in that last interview where he's talking about, like, we're going to modularize Foundry, right? So where you can just pick off the pieces you want. 
I mean, my solution to that, I've been saying since day one, since like my very first video on that was like, you need to move to a pool model. Stop using silo models. But that often means you have to rewrite all the software because the software enforces the security model, not the network, you know? And so I think that that what they're trying to do is like disaggregate the microservices so things that don't need to be orchestrated together are sold, can be sold independently. You know, there, there'll be a set of services they always have to orchestrate together. But then they can pick off a few of those and make, make the cost of operationalizing that environment for them cheaper. Because remember, you are running in their AWS sub-accounts, like their AWS uh, cloud when you sign up for the SaaS version. And so, uh, but again, they have to put a dollar amount on that. It's probably directly related to the amount of people that have to monitor those environments and, and deal with that. So I think that's why they're still in the six-figure lowest level entry point is still in the six-figure range. I'm not going to say what six-figure range, but just it's in the six-figure range. Got it. Great. Yeah. Um, uh, great. Hey, Dorian, um, thanks for coming on the show. Great commentary. Uh, you see me like if folks out there in the audience, you see me like thinking really hard because that's like, I'm just fully, I'm using my full brain power to keep up with Dorian. He's like so light years ahead of me, but, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about uh, this. Any, any last thoughts, any last comments you want to share Dorian? Uh, but definitely check out that interview from Sankar, uh, came out yesterday. Um, Morgan Stanley, where was it? I think it's on their site now, or it might be up on their YouTube channel. Um, okay. And and it's with the guy, I think it was with the Morgan Stanley analyst who recently upgraded them to, not a buy, but something below a buy. I don't know, close to a buy, somewhere in there. Uh, but, but they are going over some really interesting topics. So definitely check that out if you're into Palantir and you haven't checked it out. I think there's a lot of questions answered about their sales model and like their ramp up strategy. Like, and that's the thing that I've been, I just, been banging my head against the wall trying to figure out like what what are you guys doing like why are you selling this this way like what what is your ramp up strategy how are you going to make this work in enterprise i think there's some really good answers in there i may not like all the answers but i think there are answers that are justifiable and um i would say like if you want to get to know the platform on a deeper level check out their youtube developer channel there's this um palantir developers youtube channel and they give you a really good insight into like the actual hands-on experience of using foundry and their concepts um, and I would say if, if you're an engineer or you, you're learning to be an engineer, learn, first learn your foundational skills, uh, but then focus on Python and on Spark and on SQL, uh, because that will be the foundational layer in Foundry for building data pipelines and getting all the data lineages set up. And that'll be a very easy entry point. And from there, you can kind of springboard into, um, you know, machine learning or statistics and stuff as you, you know, you'll probably have to go to school for that. I'm not saying you're just gonna, you're definitely gonna have to get a master's as you, but, you, but you'll have this nice foundational layer um, of education to be efficient in foundry and deliver value to an enterprise while you go to learn all those other skills, you know? Um, so yeah, definitely Spot do that. on. And I, I'll just say that oftentimes a couple of rules-based models like that will wow a lot of managers. There's, there's, there's oh, a, yeah. it's a low bar there. <laughs> There's a low bar. I mean, just the data pipelines. Wow, people. <laughs> so it's like, insane. that's gold. Yeah. I mean, dude, you know how much time we would spend writing these pipelines just even a few years ago? It was crazy. So like, yeah, they've, they've really made that um, experience as a developer, like approachable. And like, you don't have to do any of the hard, heavy lifting around Spark anymore. Like it's all, you're literally logging into an IDE and from second one, you can start manipulating the data and in a way that's controlled, you know? So it's, it's pretty groundbreaking there. But yeah, Spark, SQL, and Python, I would say, are the three things to really learn after you've got your foundation layer in place. 
Perfect. And I will uh, include links to all of those things that you mentioned, the interview, the YouTube channel. I'll, I'll include that in the in the show notes. Cool. Um, cool. Dorian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, everyone, uh, thank you for joining us and um, look forward to our next conversation. Goodbye. Thanks, Manny. Shout out to Chris, too. Hey, hey Chris. Chris, Chris Patel. <laughs>